for the last time in a little while, I guess. Memory is a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? If you're like me, there are quite a few things which you wish you could forget, wrong, wrong things that you have done or wrong things that have been done to you by someone else. You wish that you could forget those things, but then there are those times when you forget certain bits of information that are important. I'm not going to go off and give a testimony or any personal illustration here because I think every single person in this church house this morning knows about a time when I have forgotten something along those lines. I've told you before, once at the, the height of a marital discussion, Rachel just looks at me like I mean, just exhausted and she goes, I hate your memory. Uh, it is a problem in the mentor household. Um, it's not just a problem in our household for getting important things. A couple of years ago, the New York Times broke a story about a millionaire by the name of Stephen Thomas. Thomas is a programmer in San Francisco who, as seems to be the stereotype, he heavily invested in Bitcoin. Um, in fact, he had purchased over 7,000 units of the cryptocurrency, and if that doesn't ring true with you, that, is, that was over $220 million at the time when the article was written. But that's not why the story broke about Mr. Thomas. Um, he got his name in the paper because the article was panicking alongside Thomas because he had also invested in what's called a secure digital wallet program, Iron Key, that kept all of his bitcoins safely locked away, only accessible by password. The only fail-safe was if the password was ever forgotten, you had 10 tries to get it right, or it would forever encrypt itself and lock you out of all of your funds. Mr. Thomas had lost the scrap of paper which he had written the passcode down on, and he had just completed his eighth unsuccessful try to get to his 220 million dollars some things are really important to remember do you agree like that don't let me ever 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 near bitcoin or iron key or anything like that um, not that i could get 220 million dollars at all Obviously, as I said, some things are more important for you to, rem to remember than others. Passwords is one of those things. They're kind of the new phone numbers. You remember how we used to be able to spout off each other's phone numbers? Now, I don't know that I could tell you what my phone number is. Uh, I could tell you what Rachel's house phone was when we were in high school, but that is of no effect anymore, I guess. But there are certain events in your life or in the consciousness of a nation that must be remembered, and if forgotten, will only lead to your detriment. You think locking yourself out of $220 million is a big mistake. Forgetting a pivotal moment in your life that God came through, or an entire nation forgetting the goodness of God, it's worse. Brother Frank has already spoken to this point. It's good for us to remember and honor these who've given their lives for our country, not necessarily to just revel in what they did as valuable and as honorable as it is, but to also chart a national course forward for our future. Because we are moved by their sacrifice for our nation and for us, it ought to change how we live going forward. A nation who constantly forgets it's sacrificed dead 
runs the risk of being careless and headstrong. And this idea of personal memory and national observance, which we're honoring this weekend as a country, is truly the perfect setting for Joshua chapter 3 and 4. You see, the whole book of Joshua is one of the most exciting accounts in all of the Bible. Uh, from it, whole books on leadership and transition and faith and all these things have been written because of this book of the Bible. Joshua, whom the book gets its name from, is traditionally seen as the human author of the majority of the text. He was Moses' right-hand man all throughout the wilderness wanderings. He was his general, his confidant, and now, now that Moses has passed away, Joshua is being called upon by God to lead the children of Israel into the land of promise, or Canaan. If all that sounds new to you, maybe you're, you're new to the Bible, you're new to the faith, and you're getting a little bit overwhelmed because we're talking about this big book in the Bible, don't worry, take it a chunk at a time. Honestly, get you a Bible that is a very easy reader. I'll, I've got a few translations that I would love to put in your hands. Um, and just passively just read over Exodus and Joshua. Those two books will give you the setting of what we're talking about here this morning. The Hebrews, or the Israelites, the children of Israel, they had broken free from their bondage from the Egyptians. Miraculously, they crossed over this sea, and they had camped out on the mountain of God where he gave them his Ten Commandments. But because of their lack of faith, Israel had been sentenced by God to walk around in the desert for 40 years. Time enough for a, a whole generation, unbelieving generation, to pass off the scene. That was the point of it. And with the old guard passing away, Joshua has now been appointed as their new leader. And Israel is once again commissioned by God to go back to their homeland. No longer wander, no longer stay in Egypt, but to get to the land of promise, Canaan. There's only one problem. Well, actually, there's probably about a hundred different problems, but only one problem right here. The main problem is that God tells Israel to cross into Canaan, to cross over the Jordan River in early spring. Yeah, you're like, what's... What's the issue here? I, I wouldn't know this. You wouldn't either unless maybe you've been in that region this time of year and the ecology of that same place has been the same for the last thousands of years or so. But Scripture tells us that fording this river in this particular season simply is not possible. It had swollen its banks to flood stage levels as it does every year. It's rushing strongest in spring. I'm showing my age here, but how many of you remember the video game that the slacker, cool teacher always lets you play in the, black, in the back of class, Oregon Trail? Uh, yeah, that was history, right? This is how we learn our history. It was educational. In the game, you leave from St. Louis, and you got to get to the Oregon Territory. There's all these scenarios you have to, you have to come up to. Undoubtedly, you're going to come to a river crossing, and the option is given, do you ford the river? Well, 12-year-old me is like, absolutely, I'm going to ford that river. And then you get into, dun-dun-dun, you and your entire wagon trail have just died in the river. Well, God tells Joshua, gather up the children of Israel. In this first really big task as their new leader, he is to stand in front of them beside this raging, flooded river 
And he's going to essentially say, God told us to cross that. To which the children of Israel are pretty much going to respond, da-da, not going to happen, Joshua. Not us. Actually, we don't have any evidence of one single person complaining or even questioning Joshua. This is a totally different group than what Moses had apparently. They don't even question him when he relays the plan because this is not one where they say, we're going to build a bridge or we're going to build a raft or anything. None of that is going to happen. The plan that Joshua is laying out is not one of his better military schemes. Um, This isn't top shelf master planning. And that's because it's not from him. This is the directive of God. Look in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can look on the screen and follow along that way with me. But Joshua said to the children of Israel, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. I practiced that this week. Verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Did you hear the plan? This plan is that Joshua is going to set his priests, the Lord's priests, out in front. These are not warrior scouts. They're not laborers or a construction crew. These are no CBs that are preparing the way for the tanks to come through. These are the priests who they are going to have their hands full, but not with bridge and dam making tools or even weapons. But they have in their hands the nation's most prized possession, the Ark of the Covenant. Now obviously there is no direct correlation here to our time, but imagine if America's wartime plan was to take a few scholars, put them on the front lines with the Declaration of Independence or maybe the Liberty Bell, see how that's going to work out for us. Not very well. Except this Ark of the Covenant This is no mere national treasure. This gold-plated box contains Moses' tablets of the Ten Commandments, a a jar of manna from their wanderings, Aaron's staff that budded, kind of solidifying he is the leader of the priests at that time. But more than any of these keepsakes that are contained within this box, this piece of furniture, if we even dare call it that, It is a symbol of God's presence with the children of Israel. By the way, I found it so interesting in verse 13 when Joshua is laying out the plan that that the Lord says that the priests are going to walk out into the middle of the Jordan River and there, middle part of the verse there, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan. That, That blows my mind. 
that the Lord will take up residence in the Jordan River. Oh, that's going to happen later in the gospel accounts. I can't get there. Hold on. But the Lord is going to take up residence and he's going to stop the flow so that his people can cross over. This isn't just a, a trinket or a piece of treasure. This isn't an ordinary chest. It's, uh, it is something special, God's presence. I am sure, however, though, there were some in the group, maybe I'm reading into Scripture, who they would question the prudence of having this particular piece of holy furniture leading the way into a surging river. Don't you think we ought to protect this, Joshua? But that's the plan, essentially. Take our most prized possession, put it in the hands of the most inexperienced scouts, and have them walk down into the river. Moses had, its crit- had his critics. If Joshua does, they've already pulled out pen and pad just to record his folly, but they're not recorded one spot in this passage. They all obey the Lord. There is no failure in the execution of this plan. You see, the very reason that God chose to employ such a different tactic of moving an entire nation across the river wasn't because it was necessarily the best plan or the most expedient plan, but verse 10 tells us, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you all your enemies. This task is a sign. It's a symbol of future things to come. And it's similar to how the Lord had used Moses in the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. God's using Joshua to cross the Jordan. This plan is for everyone's benefit. God shows his approval on Joshua's leadership. Joshua learns that God must lead, not him. And the people learn to trust God for future battles. That's the reasoning why God has chosen this very strange tactic of getting the children of Israel into the promised land. And so, the plan works out exactly as Joshua had related from God. The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, they dip their toes, just the sole of their foot, Scripture says, in the water of the Jordan River, and immediately the river dissipates before them, standing up on a heap on one side. I love the descriptive nature of that word, heap. (laughs) Joshua is like, "How, how can I describe it? Just stood up on a heap on one side over there. All the children of Israel ford the river, or they walk over the riverbed on dry ground to the other side, and it seems the priests holding the Ark of the Covenant, they remain at the very center of the river. Meanwhile, everybody passes through. It's so funny. It's so strange or ironic, whatever you want to say. If you read enough books about the Bible or about certain Bible stories, you'll find that there are so-called scholars who are incredibly brilliant people but they show their ignorance in so many different ways. They'll go to recent history where the Jordan has been known to lower to a trickle during a particular season, and they will try and make a reasonable explanation for the biblical text. Perhaps God did use natural elements to dry up the river. Um, I don't have any issue with that. But there is still remaining a greater miracle of timing here. That as soon as the priests touch the water, it goes away. 
However you cut it, whether you think this is some natural thing that the Lord just had kind of presupposed beforehand, which I don't think is the case, or if the Lord just says, no, I want the water to stop right there, however you want to see it, this is a miracle that God sees his people through. Friend, if you are a Christian and you struggle with believing certain passages of Scripture like this, some of these miracles, and you try to explain them away as quickly and as easily as you possibly can, I've got news for you. We believe much wilder things than the Red Sea splitting or the Jordan Sea standing up on a heap on one side. I've told you this before. I had a friend years ago who was reading through Genesis for the first time as a grown adult, and and he said, Corey, I'm just struggling through Genesis uh, because I cannot wrap my head around the Lord creating the world and everything in it in just six days like the text seems to suggest. And I said, oh man, I feel you. But look, that is not the craziest thing that's in the Bible at all. Uh, We believe that the one and only God-man actually walked on earth 2,000 years ago and that he lived a perfect, sinless life and that he was taken and beaten beyond human recognition until he was ultimately crucified, in which time he had a great spear plunged into his heart. And then we believe that he was buried and sealed in an empty tomb, but three days later, he rose from the dead. There, there are so many things in the Bible which are easy to understand and believe whenever you see them through the lens of the resurrection. If Christ can spring from death, the Jordan River laying up on a heap on its side, it's child's play. The very heart of Christianity is the resurrection. If he can do all of this, Nations fording immediately dried up riverbeds is nothing by comparison. But God's not done yet. That's a miracle in and of itself. And we honestly could cut the story off, go home, and believe that the Lord will help and take us through even when seasons seem independable, undependable. Another part of God's directive was that Joshua pick one man from each of the 12 clans of Israel and have them by his side throughout the duration of the Jordan crossing. It's a little bit hard to follow the chronology of Joshua chapter 3 and 4 because it's so mixed up together. But essentially, before they even get down to the river, God says, Joshua, pick you out 12 men, one from Reuben, one from this tribe, one from that tribe, all these together, and keep them close by your side. Once everyone had passed over to the other side except for the priests, Joshua and these 12 select men are to do a certain task. Read with me in Joshua chapter 4, verse 5. Joshua says to the 12, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, I don't don't want to read too much into this, but it seems to me that this is not ideal. Would you agree? It's one thing for a whole nation to cross over. In my mind's eye, I see them all kind of hurrying, chain hand holding, all the little kids being dragged by their moms. Hurry up, get across before the water comes down. I don't know. But in the middle of it all, 
Joshua essentially commissions these 12 men and make sure you get some good souvenirs, guys. This is a special time. All of this is directed by God. Each chosen man from the 12 tribes was to shoulder a stone that he found in the midst of the Jordan River, tuck it over his, or truck it over his side, over his shoulder, and Scripture would go into detail that once they reached the other side, that Joshua would then, where he is still in the middle of the river, that he would, twel- he would choose 12 stones himself, pile them there up in the middle of the Jordan River while the priests are still there, and they would all then move on. When Joshua and the twelve reach the other shore, he whistles for the priests and the Ark of Covenant to come. They follow. And as soon as they do, verse 18 tells us of Joshua chapter 4, that the soles of the priests' feet, as soon as they touch the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. That's when Joshua turns to the twelve men who are still with him, still heaving those great big stones And one by one, they strategically stack them as a memorial similar to what Joshua had done in the center of the Jordan. These are what we call stones of remembrance. The 21st verse of Joshua 4 reads, Joshua spoke to the children of Israel saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did the Red Sea, which He dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Dad, what's that pile of rocks over there? Son, let me tell you, most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Your granddad died in the wilderness. And Joshua rallied the troops and he told us that we were going to go into the promised land. And those stones tell us that God is faithful. For the better part of two weeks now, I have, for some reason or another, I have continually come back to this passage of Scripture time and time again. I've written down a couple of reasons as to why I think so. But I think it's just that the Lord has burdened me lately where we just need to stop and we need to look around at the many things that the Lord has done in our lives. And simply, but not merely, give Him praise. You need Stones of remembrance in your life. You must be reminded of the faithfulness of God. We need to remember, but too often we forget 
So whatever you need to do to remember that God was near you during that particular trying time, that God worked miraculously, that God showed up in your life in an undeniable way, do it. This week I have, I have read from several men who they have certain ways of of going about making sure that they remember some things. You might need to write it down. That's a possibility. It might work best for you. Kind of open up a journal. There's a friend that that I have that I read after that he talks about how there are certain places in his yard where he he sets up certain things to remind him about points in his life. You have to have markers in your life that you are reminded of often, Lord, you saw me through that. You were faithful then. You will be faithful ahead. Whenever we go back to Virginia to see family, we we drive by certain landmarks, we visit certain places that have particular significance to our family. A few years ago, I took the girls to the spot where I asked Rachel to marry me. The girls have worshipped in the church building where Rachel and I grew up, and they have stood on the spot where I knelt down probably hundreds of times in my life praying, God, use me. They've been there. And every time I drive past those or see those places, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of God in that time. We have a similar thing here that happens at New Hope every year around homecoming time when we always have a crowd of people who grew up here. Maybe they're off somewhere else. They're ministering or working elsewhere. But they return home and they remember. I love those Sundays because they will recollect about certain sermons or certain times when a person came to Christ and they'll talk about how you could just evidently feel the Lord working in that situation. And he was faithful. But I'm not talking about annual excursions. I'm talking about everyday landmarks of God's faithfulness. Every day that they're near us, but they're not commonplace. If there is anything in 2023 that holds sacred ground, it's these stones of remembrances in our heart. This account is so peculiar from our lives Did you notice in reading these two chapters of Joshua that it it could probably have been condensed down to about like 10 verses? The actual story is told like four times in these two chapters, but that's just how Hebrew writing styles were. It's, It's very repetitive. In addition to that, though, did you notice that Joshua and the children of Israel, they're told what God is going to do. They're even blessed enough to be reminded to take souvenirs from the trial while they're in the middle of the trial. Pick up the stones. You're going to want to remember this. Very rarely do we have the luxury of knowing what God is going to do in the situation. And even more rarely do we, in the middle of the trial, stop to think, I need to grab something from this time in my life to carry with me so that afterwards I can put this in a prominent place in my home or in my mind to remind me of God's faithfulness during this trying season. Whatever the issue is, it's a good idea to pick up some stones along the way so when it's all over, you can build a monument to God as an act of worship. 
So we need stones of remembrance to remind ourselves of God's past faithfulness, but probably more in line with the context of the passage. We need stones of remembrance because they minister to the next generation. Hear me on this. Joshua doesn't tell them to set up the stones so that they will remember the crossing of the Jordan River. I imagine that that's something that they probably will never forget personally. He told them to set set up the 12 stones so that, verse 21, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? You'd be able to relay the story. I'm sure you've probably heard the silly old quip. It probably comes up in about 300 different iterations, but if you see a, a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there all by himself. You've heard that before? Yeah. The point is that these 12 stones of Joshua chapter 4, they were set up in such a way that it would not have been something that people just quickly passed by, mistaking it for a natural formation of rock. Some time ago, we camped just outside the Painted Desert. It's this beautiful part of the country. Um, You see all these amazing rock formations, the different layers and the different colors and all that stuff. There's petrified wood just laying on the ground. It's crazy. But then you turn off a certain shoulder and on one of the rocks, you could see petroglyphs, ancient art by native peoples. Now before you get to this rock that's called newspaper rock, you could just about convince yourself when you turn your back on the road, looking at all the painted desert, you could think, I'm the first one here. Nobody's ever come this way before. This is new territory. But then when you turn and you see something like this, you realize you are not the first to come by this way. You need to set up something for your children so that when the trials of life come, they realize, oh, dad's been here before and God was faithful to him. And so God is going to be faithful to me too. Something happened here. When you look through the telescope at the petroglyphs, rocks, you realize this is not ordinary. This is not natural. Something happened here. And as the children of Israel would just be crossing by the Jordan River one day years from now, one of their children is going to look at this strange rock formation. Twelve rocks. Dad, that doesn't look natural. What do these stones mean? You need to set up something for your children to know that God's faithful. You say, Corey, what does this look like? I told you before, it's all over the place. People have suggested keeping a journal, but let's be honest, who of our kids is going to actually read all of our thoughts in our journal? It could be a certain piece of art that you put up in a certain particular place in a room or something. There are a number of ways for you to memorialize a time of God's faithfulness in your life. But can I tell you what the best way is? 
similar to actually setting up real places where we go back to and are reminded of the faithfulness of God, you need to live your life so that when your children see you living, they realize that's not natural. That is so very different. I've got friends and their parents don't act or react that way. Something must have happened in mom and dad's life. Grandpa is, he's changed. There's something different about him. You think I'm over-spiritualizing this text, don't you? I'm taking an, an archaic, old, ancient story from Joshua chapter 3, verse 4, and telling you that you need to have a good testimony before you. I'm really not. It's actually the context of the passage of Scripture. Peter, when he is reminiscing about a very similar idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, do you know what he calls us Christians? He calls us living stones. You also, as living stones, you are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's the fact of the matter. In Christianity, we really don't have any altars. We're not sacrificing anything anymore. We don't have any monuments. We don't have any temples. We don't have any holy piece of real estate that we're supposed to go back to on an annual pilgrimage or anything like that. In this room, though, we have living memorials on every pew of people who are passing by and they're looking at you and they're saying, That's not normal. That is not natural. His response, her reaction, her love, his faithfulness, that's not normal. What meanest these stones? A few years ago, one of our trustees was doing the normal things and he was locking up all the doors after church. I've told you this story before and I almost ran into him in the hall. He was chuckling to himself. And so thinking I did something wrong, I asked him, what happened? What's the deal? What, what's wrong? And he said, no, nothing. I was just laughing that if you would have told me five years ago that I'd been given keys to a church and held responsible for locking it up, I'd have laughed in your face. That story came rushing back last week and even this morning as I watched from the choir and I got to see he and his family in our pews singing during congregational singing. Those keys are a stone of remembrance for him about what it once was, but who he is now in Christ. But more than that, his singing, his being part of our church, all of that is a bigger and better memorial of the grace of God in his life. And so we look at our brothers and sisters who are singing through tears, giving sacrificially, serving selflessly and we look at them and we think what do these stones mean something different the whole point of this is not so that you can tell your story as valuable as that is christian you do have a story and it does need to be told but Joshua doesn't end it there. 
when he's telling them, make sure that your kids know about this awesome story about crossing over the Jordan on dry land. No. Read with me in closing. Joshua chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall know, then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. Verse 24. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The whole point of setting up a memorial in your life is to show the mighty faithfulness and miracle-working power of a God who never leaves you on your own. Of a God who is faithful to complete the task that He has called you to live through. He is a good God. Are you a living stone? On every pew, I challenge you before you leave, maybe not right now because it might be awkward, but when you grab your, your purse or your, your phone, you grab your Bible and you get up and you walk out these doors, look around. See the work of God, the mighty hand who works from generation to generation. Father, I pray that you will make us faithful this morning. Number one, to set up some memorials in our life to remind us of the seasons of life which you have brought us through which we never thought that you would. But then number two, so that we can have a story to tell to the generations and the nations that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.